Weibo, and welcome to another episode of Take It Black. I'm here with Kira Jenkins and JP Janky, and today we're talking about Olympics 2000. It's the 20th anniversary uh, over the next fortnight. We've heard a lot about Kathy Freeman. JP Janky was around. He was doing a lot with the Olympics there. JP, how are you going down there at Canberra? Mate, I'm going well, going well. And look, it's actually been a really good flashback uh, with the anniversary of the Sydney Olympics. And it's, it's made me think of two things. What a great time for this country uh, the Sydney Olympics was. But also, geez, where did 20 years go? <laughs> it went off the top of my head. My hair went with it. Kira, <laughs> where were you? The big question everyone asks, where were you when Kath Freeman went, went over that line, won the gold medal for the 400 metres? Look, I don't have a lot of memories of the 2000 Olympics. I was only I was only six years old no. at the time. So I hate to draw attention to the generational divide there. But um, yeah, so I remember, I think I was at my parents' house and I just remember that my, my dad and my pop were really excited. And that's kind of my memory of, of Kathy's run. What about in the aftermath, you know, in the years since, has it, you know, you, as you've got older, you would have seen that it was a significant moment. Is it, you know, how has it become something for you? Is it something that you look back on that inspired your life? Do you get the goosebumps that I get when you watch it? Absolutely. I think it's one of those collective memory things. Um, I've kind of made all these memories from watching the old videos and, and, um, you know, speaking to people who have kind of, you know, more adult memories, more, more um, formed memories of that particular race and, and those Olympics. And I do, I get the goosebumps. I get, um, you know, you can tell that it's an exciting and important, significant point. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it does. In the years afterwards, you know, it's really kind of affected that. Yeah, well, you're writing a piece for online uh, around the 20th anniversary of the whole Olympics. Did you catch the Kath Freeman documentary that went up uh, at the ABC? Yeah, I caught it. It was it was um, it was great. It was um, really interesting to um, look back on that and and see it from um, Kath's perspective and um, really dig into it. I thought it was um, fantastic. Um, but yeah, I am working on a piece for for us for online and um, spoken to um, another um, of the Olympians, Indigenous Olympians that were there in 2000, um, Brad Hoare. I spoke to him about his experience. Um, he's a, a boxer and he was actually disqualified in 2000 um, for not making weight. And um, so his experience was very different to Kathy's, yeah. um, but he still sees it with such a, um, I guess, a positive outlook and in shaping the person and the athlete that he became later. Yep. So yeah, it was really interesting to speak to him and I'll be speaking to a few of the other um, athletes over the next few days and weeks. Yeah, there's a few more. I just want to stay, uh, we're going to get to that soon. I just want to start with Kath for a minute. JP, uh, off the back of the ABC documentary, there was a bit of footage that came out online, uh, shared pretty widely, of Kath, I think it was 95, and she was at the store Gifts off a 54-metre uh, uh, mark, 
and she had to run down a, a group of, of women um, ahead of her. Uh, have you managed to, to catch that in your busy life? Yeah, I have seen that, and I've seen that uh, over the many years. Um, I think for me, in one way, those two races really highlight Cathy Freeman and the driver, Cathy Freeman. And um, watching watching the doco the other night and seeing the stall stall gif vision was amazing. Um, but then seeing the the obviously the gold medal um, win, mm. like I was nervous. I was I was actually shaking watching the repeat, even though I knew the result, because it took me back to that moment uh, yeah. twenty years ago. Yep. Um, and there was an interesting fact on the documentary that, you know, within four years, Cathy only lost one race. I think it was something in the mid-40s numbers. So she only lost one 400-metre race um, over a four-year period. So, you know, that stall gift, I think, really showed her grit and determination. You know, coming back from hmm. you know, basically, you know, so far back that you shouldn't even get close to the runners. Well, that was the thing for me is she was still a long way back on that last turn and well there were two incidents there was when she caught the main group and she copped a bit of a bump who would bump kathy freeman <laughs> going past i think look and you know in all honesty it's probably the only way you're going to stop her you know? <laughs> well there's a few uh, comments on social media that said that, that was the epitome of white feminism which i had a chuckle <laughs> at um but the other thing for me was she caught the group and then she went after the you know the the person right out front there, she was probably another five or 10 metres ahead of the group. And it was the way she ran across that last 10, maybe 15 metres. And that was 95 or something. And she did the same thing in 2000 at the Olympics where her body just seemed to go into this super relaxed mode, extended further. It was just amazing to watch. That's what brought the goosebumps up watching that again. But back at 2000 when I, when I watched the race the first time. Yeah, imagine the story that those uh, fellow competitors in the store gift back then are telling, you know, they, that they were beaten by Cathy Freeman and inspired her probably to go on to a gold medal. Yeah. Well, where were you when that night? Uh, in 2000, I was actually in Sydney. Um, I, at the time, was working for, as a sort of a media officer with ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And ATSIC had sent uh, quite a few staff to Sydney, to work with uh, international journalists and foreign correspondents who, who had come to Australia um, to help them sort of uh, get greater access to um, Indigenous community. So we were, we were working up here for two weeks. Um, I, the, the sort of the, the preliminary sort of events leading up to the 400, you know, you, I watched the, the heats in the city um, on big screens uh, where she got through sort of, you know, the, the rounds and then the semi. And then the actual night of the race, I was down at Darling Harbour, um, down at Tumbalong Park, which was a big, a big space where they'd put sort of an, a live uh, event, sort of uh, mm -hmm. stage and big screen. Um, and I was down there watching the race and I was down there with about 30,000 other people. Um, and basically everyone just stopped in Sydney when that race came on and for, 49.11 seconds, people did not say a word. And it was only until she sort of started to, you know, a couple of steps from the finish line that people got up and cheered and cried and screamed. Yep. Um, and I'm getting goosebumps now, thinking back. Oh, uh, look, it was, you know, it was, I think having been, having been in Sydney around that time, it was 
Australia and Sydney at its best. And, mm. you know, that when people say that that race literally stopped the nation, it did. It did. And the aftermath of that race where you know, people of black and white of all ages, of all races, were just celebrating the achievement mm. of one Indigenous athlete Which who has a world on her shoulders. Who, and it wasn't common you know, 20 years ago for Australia to, to do that, was it? I remember thinking at the time, I, I was in Fitzroy. I'd just pretty much moved to Melbourne from southeast Queensland. Uh, and actually, uh, in 94, when I went into uni, uh, went to an Indigenous orientation type week, and Kath showed up there. It was at Mount Gravatt up in uh, Brisbane. Uh, the Griffith University campus and, and Kath popped around and seen us all because we we're all going into uni, you know, um, and I fell in love with her. I had the crush on her from 94, you know, uh, and then 95 was the, um, for me, it was another big moment when she was at the Commonwealth Games uh, in Canada. You tell me, I thought it was in New Zealand. I got confused there when we were talking earlier. Um, and she won the race there and did the victory lap with the Aboriginal flag uh, draped over in the, as a cape. And I, you know, that was amazing uh, to me at that time and gave me the same sort of goosebumps as I'd have six or so years later. Um, but there was a lot of outcry. Uh, I remember going from uh, Southeast Queensland back home down there at Port and um, there was a lot of people in the town where my, my father lived that, didn't really appreciate the fact that she did the victory lap with the Aboriginal flag and people who, um, you know, I wouldn't have expected it from were saying some pretty racist things. And, you know, they were taking up the same sort of, uh, you know, mentality as Arthur Tunstall, who I think was the, what do they call it? The chef. De, chef de mission, I think he was. Yeah. yeah. He was the boss of the, the And what, the what did, do you remember what he was, what his line was back then? Well, he actually, he was actually saying that, uh, the flag doesn't belong uh, in that arena because it's not a flag of Australia. So it, it's quite topical that we're sort of talking about the Aboriginal flag at the time. But mm. you know, around that time, the flag had actually just been nominated uh, to be an official flag of Australia. So I think he, you know, Tunstall associated the Aboriginal flag with probably activism and a political mm. statement. So he was keen for it not to appear. It's interesting, though, that, um, you know, Cathy uh, ran with the flag when she won the 200 metres. And then when she won the 400 metres, that's when she um, ran with both flags. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, she, it was history in the making. She basically became the first athlete in, in the Commonwealth Games history to win the two, 200 and 400 metre double. Um, so it was history in the making. She obviously grabs the flag, which is even more history in the making. Um, from from my memory in the day that ton, prior, prior to her running around with the Australian and Aboriginal flags, Tunstall had instructed team management to tell Cathy not to run with the Aboriginal flag. I remember that, yeah. They chose not to pass on Tunstall's uh, advice, um, be, whether, <laughs> whether on purpose or whether they just knew it was too, too hot to debate, but they didn't yeah. pass it on. So she ran with the flag um, and maybe they supported her running with the flag, but you're right. If it, and there was a hangover going into the 2000 Olympics around that, wasn't there? I remember not, not, not as sharply as I would like to remember, but uh, 
they knew that she was going to run with the flag and there was some conversation around that. There was a huge conversation around that in the 2000 Olympics and um, the organisation that I worked for at the time, ATSIC, was heavily involved in lobbying both the Australian Olympic Committee and the uh, International Olympic Committee to accept the Indigenous flag as a flag of Australia um, and to actually be displayed. So I think for the first time it was displayed at the Olympic Village um, and also that Cathy was allowed, should she win or any athlete win, um, be allowed to run with the Aboriginal flag. And that is an issue that is still being debated currently, isn't it? Whether yeah, it's all absolutely. About political messages and, and flags uh, within the Olympic event. Yeah, look, a little insight in one of the, one of the little tricks that ATSIC did back in the day. Um, ATSIC sent, ATSIC purchased about almost 4,000 uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag lapel pins and sent them to every Australian athlete um, that was going to the games. Um, so I think we sent about five to every athlete because as Olympic pins and pins were, were this thing of Olympic games, you know, people traded them, they swapped pins, etc. And the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag pin became quite a valuable commodity, but it was a way of getting both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags into that arena worn by athletes, worn by international athletes, um, in case the IOC said, no, we don't want the uh, Aboriginal flag being displayed. Now, before we move on uh, with our Olympic general conversation, JP, I've seen a couple of tweets from you that were interesting uh, in the lead up to this fortnight. One, you've got a bit of the Olympic track in your <laughs> possession. I do, I do. And... Um, yeah, look, it's, I was uh, a friend of a friend of a friend um, knew that either A, I'm a hoarder or B, I'm a collector. Um, and yeah, it was, was managed, managed to be able to grab some of the Olympic running track that um, was ripped up after the Stadium Australia uh, refurbishment. Um, so yeah, I've got a bit of a, a, bit of a piece of the Olympic uh, track. They say it's actually the lane that Cathy Freeman ran in i don't know but that's that's hmm. my story too i'm going to stick with it so yeah i've got a nice piece of uh olympic history um and hopefully importantly a, a piece of history that links back to uh the great Catherine freeman and also a story that puts mine to shame of bumping into kathy at the uh orientation of going into uni kathy billeted with your family down in canberra going towards the yeah, yeah, we've 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 known Kathy uh, for many decades, and um, in the mid to late eighties, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport was keen to look at Kathy as a potential athlete to go on scholarship. So she was brought down from uh, Central Queensland, um, and instead of billeting her at the Institute of Sport, they asked uh, and it, they asked my mum and dad whether she could be billeted with us. Um, to give us some more support structures of being away from home. So she stayed with us for two weeks, um, probably around 90, 1986, 87. She was about 13, 14, and she basically just did uh, a very intense training schedule at the AIS, but it was the middle of winter. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she was, from my memory, she was very shy, very young, very skinny, very cold. Yeah. Um, 
and she'd just basically leave early in the morning, come home, eat dinner and go to bed. Um, so my mum used to say, you know, she used to have to wake her up each morning to get the lift out to the AS. Um, and my mum for many years joked that if it wasn't for her waking up Kathy Freeman every morning, that Kathy would have missed her moment um, and gone on to great things. And it's interesting that the night of when Kathy won the Olympic gold, the first phone call that I took within seconds of her winning gold was from my mother, um, who rang me up in tears, sort of saying, "Our Kathy, our Kathy did it. She finally did it." Um, because that's what my mum always called her. My mum always called her our Kathy, for God's sake. But um, <laughs> and then when Kathy writes the uh, her book, her one of her autobiography, I I, I retold Kathy this story that my mum claims that. You know, if it wasn't for her, you'd never be the world champion that you are. And Kathy simply wrote uh, on the inside cover to my mum. She just said, thanks for waking me up. <laughs> Which when I showed it to my mum, my mum cried, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, the only other story I've got with Kath is when I was chefing uh, in another lifetime um, in there at the CBD of Melbourne uh, at the Swiss, Swiss Bar, I think it was called. Uh, and Kath was working for the post office around the corner. At the time, she was downstairs um, getting a feed from you know, some joint that was next door. And we were having a cigarette on the landing outside the kitchen. There was Kath down below yelling out, Kath, come get a schnitzel, come get a schnitzel. She uh, either didn't hear me or ignored me, which is fair enough. Um, Kira, your article, there was a lot more blackfellas at the Olympics going in 2000 than just Kathy, wasn't there? Yeah, there was quite a few. So, I mean, I, even just within the um, athletics, you know, there was um, Nova, of course, um, and um, Nova Paris, that is, um, and Kyle Vander Vandercup. Kite, um, yep. Kite, sorry, yes. And um, Patrick Johnson as well. They were all in athletics as well. But there was heaps of people. There was um, soccer players, boxers, as I mentioned, Brad Hall before, um, and and um, Anthony Martin was was doing weightlifting at the time. So there was quite a, a you know, a, a group of them. So Was Daniel yeah. Gill, was he part of it? I remember... Um, Daniel Gear was, yeah, Daniel Gear was a boxer. Boxer, yeah. yeah. And so was um, Henry Collins and, and James Swan were both also boxers. And so, uh, and then there was Casey Women as in the um, men's soccer and, and uh, Bridget Starr in the, the women's soccer. So there was, there was, you know, a big, a big swag of them all. So, yeah, yeah not just, not just Kathy, but um, we, you know, after her, you know, win, we do really focus on, on, on that. Yeah. Um, with uh, so many blackfellas being represented, uh, representing Australia at the time, was there enough, like behind the scenes, JP, was there enough in place there to make it a safe space, um, you know, for blackfellas, for athletes and stuff in the, in the villages and whatever else they had to do? There was, but um, the, the participation of, you know, this was a huge number of Indigenous uh, sportsmen and women competing at the games and to get them to get those numbers to the games development programs actually started um, you know in the mid 90s um, with lots of identification camps and and 
and support structures in those sports. And it was mostly done through the AIS. Um, it, prior to 2000, I actually spent a couple of years working at the Australian Institute of Sport um, with their Indigenous uh, sort of programs. And so a lot of these athletes had come through development programs, elite development programs that were funded both from the Australian Sports Commission and in partnership with ATSIC at the time, who had some um, programs to do with sport and participation. So the boxers, uh, James Swan, Henry Collins, Daniel Gill and Bradley Hall, they all came through the AIS Boxing Development Camp. Um, and same with Anthony Martin. So it was, it was a time when there was some really strong programs to support athletes to go on to the next level, the, the elite level. Because as you know, look, a lot of our mob represent at community, mm. state, regional, state, and probably national level. There were these support programs which pushed them to elite level. And that ran for a number of years prior to sort of those selection processes for the uh, Olympics. It's sadly those, those things have sort of slipped a bit. Um, and I think it's reflected in the numbers that are now participating yeah. at the Olympic game level and the Commonwealth games level. And we, I really think there's a good need for the, those levels to come back and those programs to come back. Yeah, well, hopefully we see some uh, Commonwealth funding being poured back into it. I know that there's uh, initiatives like um, uh, the Paddy Bills did a story on that for online a little while back. He's, you know, kicked off a bit of a program to try and get uh, more blackfellas involved uh, and, and pathways into professional uh, basketball uh, through his initiative. Um, it'd be good to see a few more of those too from yeah, some of our stars that have already kicked on. And I think that's the challenge. Like for athletics um, and, and also track and field, it's, it's the challenge is uh, keeping athletes away from Aussie rules and rugby league and soccer and basketball now. So mm. Athletics Australia have been working on a reconciliation action plan for a, a number of months, which they uh, hope to launch. And I think that's their way of saying, we need to get back in the game. Yep. We need to find the next Cathy Freeman or... Well, oh, Patrick man. Johnson. Or Patrick Johnson. He was close to going to Broncos, wasn't he, back in the day? Yeah, well, he played, you know, Patrick played rugby league here for a local club and, um, you know, was looking to sign up with the Canberra Raiders or the Broncos, so he could have gone either way. But I think Athletics, Athletics Australia and uh, maybe other track and field uh, organisations are saying, we need to get back into the game. We need to, to find those next athletes that not only perform at a national level or a state level, but can go to the Commonwealth or to the World Championships or to the Olympics again. And uh, just while we're at the, what, what are they up to now? What's Kyle Vanderkite up to now? I seen him up at Garma there last year, sat next to him for lunch. Geez, he can put away a chop pretty quick. <laughs> well, look, we, I've known Kyle Vanderkite for many years. And when I was working at the uh, AIS, we used to basically just say his body was like the Batman suit. You know, like he, <laughs> he was fit, he was ripped, and yep. he was dedicated to 110 metre hurdles. And I, I don't know if you ever stood beside yeah, the yeah. hurdles that they jump over. Um, for him to do that and do that, and he was like world junior champion, yep. um, national champion for a record number of consecutive years. So he was a very elite athlete. So well, He was um, a hero of mine as a kid. I used oh, to be, you wouldn't know it now, but I used to be a sprinter. 
Oh. And um, he was, he wasn't that much older than me, but he was certainly someone that I looked up to, you know, I was watching on TV yeah. and stuff, flying across those hurdles. Yeah, so he's working, he's working in Melbourne, working with a, um, a fit-out company and furniture company in, in controlling their Indigenous engagement, but he's also established his own foundation um, and he's very strong in providing support networks to um, disadvantaged Indigenous kids and um, he's really working strong to support a lot of the kids in uh, regional Victoria. Um, and he wants to, I actually was talking to him last week, and he wants to get back into coaching. He's uh, helping out the Australian Olympic Committee and as one of their ambassadors and was going to go to Tokyo this year. Yep. Um, but we'll look to go to Tokyo next year in March, I think, when the Olympic Games are on. Yeah, cool. There's, I mean, Nova went on. She was a senator, obviously. Um, but we've seen a few of those names, the prominent names, um, kick on after the Olympics, which is good because quite often you see, uh, you know, athletes, because it's, you know, not as, as well funded and, you know, the sponsorship runs out, they sort of just recede into obscurity a bit. But, yeah. but our mob have uh, continued to represent. And, and just looking back at those, you know, those, those number of athletes that went to the, the Sydney Games, of course, Cathy was, was the expectation of Cathy to win gold was huge. But for the first time, those boxers were considered good medal hopes or excellent medal hopes. Um, in boxing, it, it actually comes down to the draw. Um, and sadly, some of those boxers came up against some of the Cuban boxers mm. um, very early on. So they, they were actually eliminated uh, in the first or second round. Um, of course, Bradley Hall, um, was unable to make his weight. So he was disqualified very early. But for the first time, those boxes actually were very, were considered as potential medal uh, hopefuls. And sadly, they didn't do it, but it was, it was great to see that for the first time, those boxes were in serious contention. Now, just on representation, you were saying earlier, just before we started recording, that um, as, as part of ATSIC, you went in there and with a bit of a mission into the media room or into the journalist's tent. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I think um, in the lead up to the Olympic Games, you know, once Sydney was announced as the host of the 2000 Games, there was um, a lot of discussion in Indigenous Australia about how how we should play it, how, how do we participate in it, or how do we use it as a vehicle to highlight um, the issues that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been uh, wanting to be addressed for many decades. Um, so there was considerable debate on both sides of the argument to actually participate in the Olympic Games officially, um, to actually boycotting it um, or using it as an event to really showcase the treatment of Indigenous peoples over many decades. So ATSIC was sort of uh, able to coordinate the community's expectations, but also the, the call for athletes to participate in it. So. Mm. They got, they got uh, heavily involved with the, the organising committee, the, the SOCOG, the Sydney Olympic Games Organising Committee, in lobbying them to put Indigenous issues at the forefront. Uh, in the lead up to the Games, many Indigenous uh, people and spokesperson felt that SOCOG didn't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, Charlie Perkins, who was an ATSIC commissioner at the time, felt very strongly that they weren't even taking Indigenous affairs and participation in the game serious at all. So, What did he do? 
Well, he basically wedged them um, into um, a position and uh, he felt that even when they went overseas to showcase how good the, the game's preparation was and how they were involving Indigenous people into the games, he felt that that was very tokenistic. So he basically did some media about, um, you know, how he felt that this was all tokenistic and, in fact, that... Um, Indigenous issues weren't going to be raised. So he, he went to the, he did a media interview where he compared, you know, if we don't see some change here and our involvement is taken seriously, then we will have a situation in this country similar to what was going on at the time in America. And at the same time in America, they were going through the LA riots. So he used this catchphrase called burn baby burn in terms of the people will take to the streets um, and, and protest. So, of course, mainstream media picked up on that. Mm. And that made the front page of basically every paper. Um, he, had a, he had a crack on the cat. He, he went on, you know, the midday show with Kerry Ann Kennelly and spoke about it. Um, <laughs> very interesting story that I remember the day that that headline ran on the Daily Telegraph. Charlie was in Canberra and he was actually, he hurt his foot and I had to take him to the doctor. And we sat in a doctor's waiting room and there were all these people reading the front page of the paper <laughs> with the headline, Burn Baby Burn, <laughs> and a photo of Charlie. And there is Charlie sitting up with a sore foot. He just sort of shrugged his shoulders. But what it did is it forced SOCOG to come back to the table and put Indigenous issues at the forefront. Um, so it probably uh, enabled us to have a greater input and say, into the Olympic Games than we were going to get. And of course, you know, Bill, the 90s was quite a political time. You had ATSIC as mm. a very strong ad national advocacy body. You had the push for reconciliation. So it helped, I think, Australia really push forward into addressing some of the social issues that had been kicking along the way for a long time. Was there some protest camps around the Olympics? I remember, um, Leading up to the Olympics, there was a lot of anxiety uh, of stories, whether apocryphal or not, about mob being shifted out of inner city, uh, Sydney, um, being shifted out uh, of their homes, whether it was Redfern or elsewhere, to, to clean up uh, inner city Melbourne. And then, you know, I was up at Tweed there. Apparently, there was a mob that moved in up there and that happened elsewhere around the state. Um, but unlike with... Uh, the Melbourne Olympics, uh, uh, Melbourne Commonwealth Games, say, uh, through the early noughties and the one on the Gold Coast recently, I don't recall a lot of media attention on an actual protest camp. Was there one at the time? Yeah, there was a pro protest camp set up at Victoria Park um, and it attracted, um, you know, uh, community people and activists from all around Australia. Um, this was probably a bit different than the Commonwealth Games uh, in 88 and, and previous games because it had the media came to Sydney. So um, the protest groups were able to access media and media were able to come to them. So they didn't have to, you know, camp outside the front of the stadium yep. or march down the street. A lot of international journalists, journalists and correspondents came to Australia seeking to talk about the Indigenous issues and Indigenous affairs. So 
there was a, a protest site at Victoria Park, which was set up, and a lot of uh, journalists went down there and spoke to the mob who were down there. Yep. Um, and of course, ATSIG was around, so ATSIG facilitated a lot of those discussions. Now, ATSIG basically had um, three three stances on the games. They they didn't support a call for the boycott of the games, but they also respected the right of many to be engaged in peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. And of, of course, they they also said, you know, individuals should determine whether they participate in the games. So it kind of allowed, you know, people to protest, people to have their say, to raise the issues that they want to raise, but also, you know, athletes who had worked all their life at this moment to participate and be celebrated and actually be part of that change in dialogue as well. Yeah, of course, it was 82, uh, I recall, I was up on the Gold Coast for that one, young fella uh, with Foley leading protest uh, demonstrations uh, in Brisbane, 82 games, big, big, uh, I also remember Matilda, the big kangaroo. Um, and then, yeah, it was Melbourne, there was a big one uh, with Robbie sort of at the forefront, prominent amongst that uh, yeah. the, the protest. Uh, I was also up at the Gold Coast one, um, when, whenever that was a couple of years ago, a few years ago now. And they sort of did the same thing where, I mean, there was lots of actions uh, outside the stadium, inside the stadium, on the streets of the Gold Coast. But it was also, sounds a lot like what you were saying, that uh, media were invited into the protest camp up there and the, the Commonwealth Games facilitated um, some meetings between the, you know, the president of whatever the Commonwealth Games organisation is and, you know, others. But one notable aspect was there was a lot of solidarity from other black athletes from international black athletes mm -hmm. uh with aboriginal affairs and also the protest um was that a similar sort of scenario for sydney yeah absolutely i think a lot of the uh, uh american athletes who came out here you know wanted to learn more about indigenous culture and history and peoples and um you know obviously a lot of the the, the black nations that participated supported indigenous people. Um, and one, and I think, you know, from the very opening ceremony of the games, they wanted to see and participate with indigenous peoples and engage with indigenous communities. Um, some of them went down to the protest camps and went to organizations. Um, you know, importantly, I think there were lots of, there were lots of indigenous events around the games to maximize indigenous media that had, that had turned up. So, you know, there was um, press conferences for the Stolen Generations um, mob. There was press conferences for the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. Lots of First Nations media also came and were part of the Sydney Media Centre. So there was quite an opportunity for the, the mixing and networking of journalists and particularly First Nations journalists. I remember Michael Johnson, I think that was his name, the, the American 400-metre uh, runner. He had gold shoes, I think he went round in. Yep. He uh, had a little bit of involvement with some mob. I remember that uh, fairly clearly at the time. But, yeah, I was chefing, so it was a bit of a blur back then, apart from Cass winning. Yeah, look, um, I kind of remember that maybe Carl Lewis might have gone down to Redfern at the Olympics. And Carl Lewis, of course, was the, the undisputed 100 and 200-metre champion of the world back then. So I kind of remember that he might have gone to Redfern. Yeah, yeah, nice. Bit of a um, Ali-type flavour to it when he walked down Smith Street down here at Fitzroy. Well, you know, that's, 
That's Everyone was in Fitzroy that day, by the way. It's one of my other memories of uh, being at the Sydney Olympics. The night before the opening ceremony, uh, um, I went to an event um, with a couple of other uh, people and met Muhammad Ali. Um, and in fact, and in, yeah, he, he, was, he came out to the Olympics um, and it was, I think, a cocktail party put on by uh, one of Australia's richest men at the time, Richard Pratt, who owned Busy, Busy mm-hmm. Board. And he put on a party a cocktail party where Muhammad Ali was the guest of honour. And so I was, I was sitting there shaking Muhammad Ali's hand. Interesting, um, um, Henry Collins, who's one of the boxers who was participating at the games, he found out about it and we snuck him out of the, of the village to come to the event where he met Muhammad Ali as well. Nice. So, Kira, how's your article looking after listening to a couple of old blokes like me and JP? Look, I reckon I'll be able to use some of this conversation in the in the articles. Uh, in the article, um, it's been pretty interesting to kind of, um, I mean, not just hear from the athletes that I've kind of spoken to so far, but to hear from you know JP, who was kind of working behind the scenes, how it all you know, was going on. I think that's, um, yeah, really interesting for people to know kind of what goes on um, around the village and, um, yeah, and behind the scenes at a big event like this. Yeah, well, it is uh, still surprising to me that there was so much going on at that time, 20 years ago, that... um, I, I, I believe was missing from the Commonwealth Games on the on the Gold Coast, um, and also you know just the degree to which some of our Aboriginal leaders that time were engaged with you know, promoting the sorts of things that really sit on the periphery uh, more recently. Would that be a fair enough kind of summary? Do you think, JP? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the games in two thousand came at the end of the a real strong decade for advocacy and the push for rights for Aboriginal people. You know, ATSIC had been around for 10 years um, and had been heavily involved in, in one way, embarrassing the the various governments into action um, that had been not addressed for a long time. It also came at the end of a decade where the the judicial system had given some some rights and some power back to Aboriginal people. You know, the Mabo decision, the WIC decision. There was the, the Gunner and Kabilo case on the Stolen Generations. You know, Attic was talking about a treaty back then. Um, there was this huge movement of reconciliation that had grown from the early 90s. Um, and, you know, in May 2000, there was that bridge walk. Mm. Know, where, which, so there was this huge momentum to basically finished this unfinished business of this country. And then came the Olympic Games. So there was this huge breath, I reckon, from black and white Australia to say, this is our moment. Let's not, let's not waste it. Let's not do anything to embarrass ourselves. Um, and, I, and just being in Sydney at the time, there was, there was like this huge expectation of indigenous involvement or, or celebration of indigenous peoples by this country from athletes participating in the games and winning medals, and Kathy, of course, but then also on the other side. And 
from the from the opening moments of that opening ceremony, you know, where hundreds of Arundel and Central Australian women come out en masse, and the thread of that Indigenous story into that opening ceremony, you know, coordinated by um, Stephen Page, Page from Paradise yeah. and many others, people just went, yes, mm. yes, that is, that is it. And I think that carried on, that feeling carried on through the whole of the games. And of course, when Cathy wins the gold medal, it's just the, the cream on the cake. But, you know, seeing the, seeing the way that Indigenous history and story and language was, was celebrated and put into that national story from the opening sequences of that opening ceremony just made people go, yes, mm. absolutely. And then even to the closing ceremony, you know, when you had Midnight Oil perform and they had Sorry written on their um, black clothing. Because we were still under the Howard regime at that yes, point, yeah. weren't we? And Yothi Yindi, you know, performed at the closing ceremony. Christine Arnu sang, you know, it was, it was a real celebration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and culture. And as, as everyone I think is saying, watching the documentary uh, on ABC a couple of nights ago is, you know, that was when Australia was at its best. Yeah. Well, have we gone a little bit backwards? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, a tweet that sort of went viral, I suppose, uh, overnight. Uh, US Open winner Naomi Osaka uh, criticised for bringing politics into sport by wearing the masks with uh, the names of victims of uh, systemic racism in US policing written on them and drawing some pretty heavy criticism. She came back and tweeted out, of course, that you know, she'll continue to do so, uh, which is great. But we, uh, whether it's the rise of social media, uh, the prevalence of social media and trolling, um, we seem, well, I think we've kind of taken a step or half a step backwards in terms of, you know, we seem to get outraged, politics and sport. My God, how could you ever, I mean, it's always, sport has always been about politics for mob, right? Absolutely. Look, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a person of colour, you are political 24-7. Um, and I think, you know, sport has always been used as a vehicle to uh, highlight injustice. And it's always highlighting injustice of Indigenous people. So, you know, I think that the, the criticism and the, the negative comments come, I think, when they raise difficult issues for the rest of society you actually have to face up to those issues. Yeah, and of course, Latrell Mitchell, uh, that appearing in the NRL uh, 2020 season promotional video, uh, wrapped himself in the Aboriginal flag, as did Kath back in 2020. And there was outcry about that as well. I think they ended up pulling the ad, or at least cutting that segment from the promotional video. So, yeah, it's, um, there's still some ground to regain, maybe. <laughs> Oh, look, in some ways, it's laughable. I mean, the, the, the criticism of Adam Goods doing a war dance during the Sir Doug Nichols round many years ago, where he pretends to throw a spear, <laughs> you know, the, the outcry over that was laughable. Um, but, you know, people felt uncomfortable because it raised some issues uh, that they weren't comfortable with. Might be time to get the Olympics back. Start again. Well, I think, you know, you look back at the 2000 Olympics, it was... Before social media, it was before people had cameras on their phones. It was before people would, you know, be able to uh, 
create mass movements through social media and online platforms. So, you know, it was a time when you could raise those issues and knew that if Australian media weren't going to talk about it, international media certainly were. Yep. Yeah, well, um, I remember morning television, watching the American morning television at that time, and there was a lot of interest in which way the water went when you hit the half flush button on the toilet down here. They were fascinated. It's like, oh, there's a few more other issues that you might want to get your head around. Um, that's probably all we've got time for. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Take It Black, JP and Kira. No worries. Thank you. And listeners, please subscribe to Take It Black using your preferred podcast listening app. Join us on Twitter, throw us a follow, and uh, we'll catch you next time. And until then, please take it black. Always love, always love it.